Welcome to SACPA. My name's Dwayne Pendergast, and I'm your moderator today. Uh, we're starting to record, so please turn off your cell phones. I did that myself. Check the payment basket to ensure no one has forgotten the $12 lunch fee. And for any newcomers, I know we start with the 25 to 30 minute presentation, then we break for lunch, followed by a 30 minute question period starting about 1 p.m. Now I'd like to introduce our speaker for today, Larry Martin. And I have a little crutch end story to fit him into. I remember when Prime Minister Chrétien signed the Kyoto Greenhouse Gas Reduction Treaty 20 years ago. At the time, he thought Canada would be able to get international credit for our extensive greenhouse gas-free hydro and nuclear power and uh, low-emission natural gas exports to the U.S. and credit for carbon dioxide absorbed by our forests. There was even a special United Nations meeting in Whistler to discuss these aspects of atmospheric greenhouse gas reduction. The Prime Minister's expectations have been dashed ever since. We've got no credit for any of those things. So uh, Larry Martin was a longtime civil servant. Before retiring to Canmore, he served as Deputy Minister to the Premier of Saskatchewan and Assistant Deputy Minister of Rural Development and Intergovernmental Affairs in Manitoba. That one takes my breath away. And he will talk to us today about the need for broader science-based consideration of greenhouse gas management. He's particularly interested in the carbon absorbing role of the many large biomes in Canada and has been publishing articles in the Financial Post and Huffington Post. Uh, his, title, his talk is titled, Fair Climate Policy for Canada, Let's Follow the Science. Thanks for your kind introduction, Dwayne. Uh, the story about uh, Christian's uh, Kyoto expectations and how they were subsequently dashed, I'll return to as, as we get into this. Uh, I appreciate everybody coming out today to listen to my perspective on climate change. I'm sure everybody has one. Uh, I uh, am not. I, basically spent my life in the back room, so public speaking is a bit new to me and a bit late in life. Um, it says here that I was Deputy Minister of the Premier, but before that I was uh, Secretary of the Cabinet Planning Committee. And that, in that role, and subsequently in the Cabinet Room, that's where you get to see how the politicians actually make their policies, what goes into it, what shouldn't go into it, and those kinds of things. Uh, that's primarily where I'm coming from here as someone who is interested in public policy. Uh, I'm not a scientist and I don't pretend to understand the science in any great detail. Uh, there's lots of people that can speak to that better than I can. Uh, 
but I, I know enough to know that you can't ignore it and expect to come up with a public policy on an item that's as important as climate change is uh, unless, if you don't do that, you're gonna make some horrendous mistakes and it's my opinion that our current governments across the country, certainly at the national level, uh, don't have the full picture they need to be fair to us and to be efficient in what they do. Uh, let me tell you how I got started. I, back in late 2015, uh, Premier of Alberta announced her climate leadership plan and uh, I took the time to read it, study it, and my first impression of it was I couldn't understand how you could develop a plan that had so many huge important pieces missing and call it a plan. Uh, you could have called it a, a committee report, which it was, but not a plan. Uh, so I wrote my first column uh, that was published in the Calgary Herald and, and essentially criticized what I thought was a ham-fisted approach to spending billions of dollars to shut down our coal plants uh, prematurely. Uh, for the simple sake of, of the optics of lowering our carbon footprint. Uh, not long after that, our federal government announced that it was moving along on lowering emissions and they were going to use uh, the, mes the method of a national carbon tax to do that. Uh, so it became increasingly apparent to me that they were only working with half the carbon cycle. And so I, I wrote a column which was published in, in the Financial Post. Uh, that piece took off. It struck a nerve with a lot of people. Became the most popular uh, article of the year in the social media, which I don't use. Uh, before that, I wasn't sure that 80 people agreed with me, let alone 80,000. So. Uh, my, my purpose here today is, is not to provide you with, with answers, but to get you to think, to question, to analyze, and hopefully demand action of your leaders uh, on this important issue. Try to be fair to everybody. Uh, when I'm done, uh, I hope to have covered the, our lack of science in the current climate policy, uh, Canada's potential uh, to absorb carbon dioxide and what opportunities that provides for us. Uh, I want to compare Canada to the big player in this, and that's China. And then I would like to make some recommendations for what I think are, are real uh, and positive uh, contributions that Canada can make to this issue. So what is the current state of affairs? Well, let's look quickly at the Can Canadian Alberta climate file after 20 years of after Kyoto, we still haven't completed the full carbon cycle science. No one can tell you today what Canada's baseline is. And you can't develop effective, efficient policy, or you can't even know what effective and efficient policy is unless you have that baseline. Okay? And our governments are implementing policy anyway costly policies. You know, our Prime Minister made some unfortunate statements of 
a while back of phasing out the oil sands. It's not helpful. Uh, we get from NGOs and, and uh, environmental groups uh, labels like fossil of the year or corrupt petrostate. And even fairly reputable organizations like the Conference Board of Canada give Alberta a D minus, along with Saskatchewan, uh, on climate status, and they give Quebec an A. Uh, obviously, they get the oil and they get the hydro. Uh, now let's look at the rationale for the, that they give us for their policy decisions or their positions. Canada must honor its Paris commitments. And Canada is a large per capita emitter, standard one. So we have to reduce. Canada needs to be seen as a global leader. It's the optics, something for our national psyche. Canada is prosperous and we must do more. I think you can notice from those kinds of things that none of them are rooted in science. There's an avoidance of the science here. They're subjective supposed to's, driven by our emotional. Now, most Canadians, I think, would agree that our response to climate change, and we should make one, needs to be scientifically sound, environmentally sustainable, financially realistic, and comprehensive as well as effective. Right now, Canadian government's approach is based on a one-sided obsession with emissions. They are completely ignoring the other side of that cycle, which is absorption. So let me ask you, is Canada even a net carbon dioxide emitter? If you take into account what we ab absorb against what we emit, what's your answer? To get some insight into that question, you have to go outside of the country. You have to leave Canada. And I went to the Global Carbon Project, and I used the 2015 report. If you look um, where you see total there, that's uh, human-caused emissions of carbon dioxide average over the 10 years for the world at 37.6 billion tons of that amount. The land absorbed 11.5 billion tons, the water 9.7, and 16.4 stayed in the air. Now, the, the amount that stayed in the air accumulated over time since the industrialization has driven our CO2 content in the atmosphere from 280 parts to 400 parts per million uh, and raised our climate science uh, the objective of Paris is to try to keep that uh, number under two, probably in the range of 500 parts per million from the current. Now, I give you a little number on the bottom that I calculated just to try to, to give you something that you can relate to uh, when we come back to the land. Um, land area of the planet, you get 77 tons per square kilometer. Uh, uh, so, then based on the averages from the, using an average from the Global Carbon Project, Canada's land mass means that we're likely, sort of stands to reason, if you look at the size of the country, the few people we have, I mean, intuitively, we all kind of, meanwhile, the big four emitters, 
which are China, the US, the European missions on the planet. And if you use that same calculation, about 10 times what they could absorb. So urbanized, overpopulated nations around in Europe and Asia and the Middle East can't make a meaningful contribution to absorption. But a vast country like Canada certainly can. We should measure it. It's meaningful. Unfortunately, that's not what we're doing. We're signing agreements that give that away. Don't even consider it. Now, you'll, you'll often hear uh, our Prime Minister and Federal Minister of the Environment state that our action is necessary to meet our obligations under the Paris Agreement. Uh, but Canada's problematic approach in the Paris Agreement goes back a lot further, as Dwayne has mentioned earlier. It goes, goes back to the 90s uh, with Kyoto where Canada, Russia, Australia, Japan, and a few others actually argued that natural absorption of carbon dioxide should be included in the agreements, into the Kyoto Protocol. Okay. That failure of Kyoto has haunted us ever since. You know, recently, you know we, we are, there's a token in Kyoto and continues under something called LULUCF, which you can look up elsewhere, but basically limits the consideration of land use to a very, very small fraction of that 11.5 billion tons that naturally happens. And re more recently, there's even some additional program called RED, which, which tries to tackle the, pro the saving the forests in some of the poorer countries, but is very small, again, and operates uh, on a charity model uh, rather than a business model it's that it should be. Okay, I want to go to China now. China is by far the world's largest emitter of carbon dioxide. It represents 30% of the total. Uh, their emissions, in order to reach a neutral point would have to reduce by 90 plus percent, and that's simply not going to happen. Since 1990, China's emissions have quadrupled from 2.4 billion tons to 10.4 billion tons. Um, with a similar population, India is following the same trend. They're behind them, but they're following that same trend. Uh, the China's emissions today are almost double the American, which used to be the leader, and they were half, less than half of the American emissions in 1990, 30 years ago. Okay, now comparing Canada to China. Our total emissions, over the, again, over that same 10-year period from 05, or 06 to 15, Canada's average emissions were 567 million, sorry, that's million tons for Canada, billion tons, yeah, okay. And China is 9.64. Now, 9.64 is the average over the period because China was increasing, it's currently at 10.4 10, 10 in the latest year. Canada's emissions over that period were stable, 
So what you see as an average is about what we did in each of the years as well. Now if you go back, if you take that, again, the, the amount absorbed by the land and the countries are roughly the same size, you see that you, if you reduce by the amount of 770 for the land and 740 for China's land, the remainder to the air and the water then for Canada is, is a negative number, 200 million tons. And the remainder for China, of course, is a big problem. Uh, now, China and India uh, had the opportunity, could have leapfrogged in their development the old dirty sources of energy. But instead, they, they chose to take the cheapest, least innovative, dirtiest way forward. And that's what we face. China continues to build and finance coal plants for themselves and across Asia, the Middle East, and Africa with no signs of stopping. Okay. Simply put, climate change does not originate in Canada. Climate change is made in China. That's what the numbers say. But they get off scot-free and we get the taxes. Now, our government's decided to levy a carbon tax on Canadians, but there's nothing on our imports from China or anywhere else. If you were to be fair to all Canadians who work, who need to work for a living, then we should at least have a comparable tax on our imports, if you think carbon taxes are the way to go. Okay. If we our federal government is going to approach the Chinese uh, on a broad front to improve and increase our trade relations. Our climate policies need to be on the same page as China if we're to expect fair trade. Okay. Population. You can't talk about Asia without mentioning population. Overpopulation in the world is, a, is the biggest problem. It is the elephant in the climate change room. Okay. Attempts to limit population growth haven't worked, don't work. Most people don't even want to think about them. So we have to be realistic. Population will increase. Okay. Global fossil fuel use has increased at or above the rate of population growth since the 1960s. Multiple organizations, including the International Energy Agency, expect fossil fuel use to grow out to mid-century at 1% a year. That's in line. So as the population grows, demand for fossil fuel will grow. Canada's policies seem totally at odds with that. The current federal government's strategy for a clean proposes that Canada lower its emissions by 80% area, Canada's fossil fuel industry, the biggest driver in our economy, and grows. Okay. As all of we provide that, lower emissions, as a free gift to places like China that are uncooperative on the issue and happily exploit every advantage we give them. Now, I always, I always get uh, per capita back 
uh, as why we should do more because we are in fact high per capita emitters. But it's a destructive kind of argument for Canada because CO2 knows no national borders and it's not the important item, it's what is important is the total. But let's have a run at it anyway. There's our problem according to the environmental groups. We have CO2 emissions at close to 16 tons per person. China is less than half that. If you subtract out what we absorb though on a full cycle, our net our absorption or our emissions are actually minus. Nobody, I don't think anybody will ever lay that one out, certainly not from an environmental group because they have trouble with the full cycle. We need to stop and realize that Canada is not a major player, no matter how much we pump punch above our weight, we have no significant influence on climate change from the perspective of emissions. The hard truth is that no country is interested in following our lead and we have no sway with the big ones that do. Okay. So what can we do? Recommendations. Complete the carbon cycle. Can't Canadian government should immediately put its best minds to work quantifying our land masses natural absorption capacity. In addition, our provincial government should publicly challenge the best minds they have at our universities to study the entire cycle from emission to absorption in order to get the balance sheet right. Okay? There is nothing that stops anyone in Canada from doing that now. We don't have to ask anyone's permission to do that. We have an obligation to, and we should get at it. S second action, implement, if, implement full carbon cycle pricing. If we must, and I say must, I don't, I'm not in full agreement with it, but if we must have carbon pricing, then in order to be efficient, to be effective, to know what, that you're actually doing this thing correctly, you have to price the full cycle and that means pricing natural absorption. You cannot find an efficient solution without it. At $50 a ton for our absorption based on those calculations, Canada would have $10 billion a year to do environmental things. Okay. And who do we give that away to? China. Okay. We need to harness all the people that use land, our farmers, our foresters, all of the people, they are already on the forefront of some of this stuff. And if they can improve it, they ought to be paid for it. And they ought to be paid for it by people like China. Okay. We need action three, we need to create a land conservation and management coalition. We're not alone. Every country should get its fair share. Some of these countries are desperately poor. We need to start with huge places, forest places like Russia, Brazil, Republic of Congo, Argentina, Peru, and organize this side of the equation, organize this side of the, we, we shouldn't have to do it alone. And if we do it, you, you will recognize that we will then in fact protect and preserve the forests that are essential to maintaining any semblance of balance on that carbon cycle. We've lost 30% of the forests already. 
another 20% are degraded. And the population of the world is going to overrun the rest if we don't pr protect them. And the way to do that is with price. Okay. The fourth one is a, is a tough nut to, for Alberta. You can't get the carbon cycle back to balance unless we reduce fossil fuel usage. Okay, that's a hard fact of life. Now, if we're going to do that, we probably, it would probably be a more direct approach to approach it from the supply side rather than demand at the pump. So carbon taxes uh, uh, distort markets, so do cartels. But we need, to, we need to look at that. So Canada could broker a deal with the major players that I call the superpowers. These are the climate superpowers. If you look at those three countries for oil, they represent uh, fully a third of the world oil supply. The two countries there are more than half of the coal. The natural gas the same, about 40% for the US and Russia. In terms of geography, those four countries are about a third of the, world, of the world's land service. So if you have those people in the room and they can cooperate to lay out a, the groundwork for a climate sensitive production, then you have the makings of a solution to this problem. Okay. Conversely, if these big players won't cooperate, then no amount of taxation on Canadians or behavioral change by Canadians will make any difference at all. The big players will let you know where they stand. Okay. The other defensive issue here for Canada, and particularly Alberta, is if we're not in the room when these decisions get made, we're the ones who have lost production in the oil sand. What share of what market is left, what, sen what climate sensitive market we have, what share of that belongs to Canada and to Alberta, and who's going to defend our interests, all Canadians' interests? So, in conclusion, I believe we need a fair climate policy that acknowledges the importance of the full cycle, the carbon sinks as well, that the large polluters, the, the, the major polluters, need to do the heavy lifting, emitters, I should say. I don't believe that there's any point in taxing Canadians when we know that it will not have any effect on global climate change, nor I think is there any reason to handicap our industries with it without the cooperation of the people who actually matter. Okay, Wherever you are on the spectrum of opinion on this issue, please insist that the full cycle of science be completed and be part of the discussion when you're forming your opinions. It's not some arbitrary reduction from some arbitrary date that's a solution here. By getting the credit we deserve, we ensure that the planet's real polluters pay their fair share. We win, and so does the climate. So the question is, why do we let our leaders set us up to fail? I think that the options that I've presented here today offer a stronger, greener Canada in a greener world. Thank you. For anybody that wants to uh, 
have a run at me in terms of the ideas, I'd be happy to, after lunch. <laughs>